Hello and welcome to the Learn Podcast, where we explore and dissect the wide-ranging topic of education to improve outcomes for students everywhere. I'm Chris Chambers, a student-turned-teacher, and I'm interviewing people from every walk of life with the hopes of creating a productive dialogue about education. Let's get started with today's episode. Today on the podcast, we have Taylor Lowe. Taylor is the director of Eagle U, which is a nonprofit that teaches high schoolers and college students, I just say life skills, okay? I went through Eagle U when I was in high school, and they teach everything from how to make a great first impression, how to develop goals, how to conquer goals, how to develop all kinds of very useful interpersonal skills that are just not taught in the current education system. Taylor worked in politics for a very long time. She double majored in political science and communication studies at the University of Kansas. She's worked for congressmen. She's worked as the director of government affairs for the Kansas Chamber of Commerce. Taylor is a very impressive, passionate woman. She loves what she does. And I can't wait for you guys to hear this very engaging, informative conversation. So Taylor, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Chris. I'm excited. So tell me a bit about yourself, right? The, the topic is education. How do you fit into that? Obviously, you went to school, but what else do you do that has to do with school? Yeah, so obviously, I was a student. Um, I was raised in Colorado in the public school system, um, like most people. And then I went to the University of Kansas, and I majored in political science with a minor in communication studies. And then as far as continuing to be a student, you know, I believe in lifelong learning. So constantly reading and trying to continue my education the best way that I can. And as far as the other side of education, maybe more of the teacher, if you will, I run a nonprofit called Eagle University that does a week-long youth success program for high school and college students where we try to teach them these fundamental principles of success that will give them a seven-year career and life head start. Okay. Wow. So I... I work with EU as well, and it's a great program. And if anyone wants more information about that, just contact me. Or I'll put a link in the show notes to it. It's a great program. I think everyone should go to it. It's the best investment I've ever made. But Taylor, I know I sent you questions earlier, and you're probably trying to figure out where I want to start. But since we're talking about Eagle U, and the, all the terminology that I see in the Eagle U like language and verbiage is about success, right? And there's been a lot of studies and there's have been a lot of arguments made on how we measure success in the classroom, how we measure growth. How does Eagle U do it? And in your experience, how, how does formal education do it outside of Eagle U? Yeah. So how Eagle U measures success is we like to sit down with our students and we like to help them identify what it is that they truly want out of life and what success looks like in their eyes. Because success is not a one-size-fits-all. Success does not mean that you have to go to college. Some people are more suited for a trade school or whatever it might be. And so when we're helping these students to find success, it's, okay, what are your personal goals? And then have you achieved your own goals and the own standards that you set for yourself? And so I think that that's definitely how Eagle U would define it. And just from my experience with the school system, I feel like they very much define success by test scores, standardized test scores, and graduation rates. Oh, yeah. Um, which, well, obviously. And I don't necessarily think there's anything wrong with that per se, but I think we need to be more dynamic in how we define success in the classroom. 
Okay. So a lot of nonprofits try to bridge that gap between personalizing their, uh, their service to whoever they're serving, right? But they also have to manage kind of how do we track data and how do we show our investors or our donors success, right? So I've seen other nonprofits come up with data and like graphs. And um, I'm thinking of Project 88, who is run by, or that is run by a personal friend of ours and Erica Graham, right? They have a great metrics page where they measure their impact, right? So it seems like formal education is kind of forced into making their metrics standardized test scores or graduations rates simply because it's very cut and dry and everyone takes it, right? But how, based on Eagle use a very intangible product. It's very intangible, deliverable to the students, right? So how do you, how do you measure growth in a personalized way while keeping kind of metrics that are going to apply to everyone at the same time? That seems like the issue with measuring success and growth in the classroom, right? Right. No, and I agree with you. And, you know, I think that I've, I don't want to say fail, but I've not done a great job of measuring our students' Eagle View success with metrics. And that's something I'm trying to work on by tracking it with, you know, actual numbers. And that's something I'll work on in the future. But as far as us tracking right now, I think the best way we can show our results and our impact is through our testimonials. And it's the emails that I get from students that say, hey, you know, I used X, Y, and Z that Eagle You taught me. And I got into this college that I applied for that I never thought I could get into, or, hey, I use my interview skills and I was hired on the spot. And it's a very personal, individualized way that we show that what we teach actually works. It's just by those personal stories of these students achieving the goals that they set for themselves using the curriculum and the strategies that we gave them. Yeah. Like I interviewed my friend Nicholas um, a few nights ago and what he said was you can't reduce a student down to a GPA and a test score, right? And it doesn't seem like, yes, metrics are important, but it doesn't seem like those completely encompass everything that a student is. A student's a human being. A student is much more than numbers, right? And I think Eagle U does a good job of recognizing that even if, you know, you can't have a very pretty infographic with testimonials. Right. Yeah, it's it's tough, but yeah, I... I'm glad to hear that you're experiencing the same issues. Okay, so there's, there's a number of directions we can go from there. But you did mention two or three skills that, that Eagle, U, Eagle U teaches, mainly in interviewing. Okay, so mm-hmm. in your experience, you've been Eagle U director for, this would be the second year, but you've worked with the program for a long time, correct? Correct. What skills do students need most that they're not getting in the classroom or even outside of the classroom in their like normal daily lives? Wow, that's hard. Yeah, <laughs> I think yeah. that depends on the student and what their goals are, you know, depending on what they need. But I mean, first and foremost, I would say goal setting. And within that, I think there's so much strategy behind it. And there's systems that are put into place with goal setting that help these big, ambitious, like dreams that we have become reality. And I think that it's not taught in school. I mean, I've never seen it taught in school of how do you actually set a goal with you know, a deadline and, you know, positive self-talk that goes into it daily and affirmations and, you know, these steps that you can take to achieve it. And so I think that's number one of the biggest things that's not taught. Um, And the second part of that, that I would say is core values. And by that, I read this, or I heard this statistic the other day that 77% of adults 
are unhappy in their careers and in their lives overall, 77%, which I thought was just shocking to me. And when they boiled it down and they continued with this study to really figure out why, the issue was that these people had picked a career path and a life that didn't align with their core values and who they truly were on the inside. And the reason for that is nobody sits you down and says, okay, well, let's, let's do some digging and let's teach you how to identify from deep within who you really are and what you really desire and what you really value. And so I think that's huge and should be number, one of the number one things that we're focusing on, whether it's inside or outside the classroom. I don't know what the best way to do that is, but if we can help these students identify what they value, what their core values are, then from there, we can build on their goals and everything else, but at least they're finding who they really are and what they really want. And they can avoid that trap that 77% of people have fallen into. Yeah. 77. That's quite like depressing. I didn't know it was that high, Um, but I'm not, it's not surprising. Right. So it seems like there's a, a lot of systems and, and we'll talk about natural laws in a minute that Eagle U teaches, but at the root of all of those are, are asking questions. Right. So I see that as the thing I, I've been through the EUE program myself. Right. And that's what it taught me the most was how to ask better questions. Okay. And obviously Steve, does, Steve and Matt do a lot of the, the talking on stage now, but what, what's working in the EUE curriculum that's teaching students how to ask questions? Cause it's, it's one of the most difficult things to teach. So how do you think Eagle U does that? It's, I know it's hard to explain, but how do they teach how to ask questions? Let's, let's take me through that process. Oh my gosh, yeah, that is hard to explain. Um, well, one of the first things, and this sounds so basic, that you know our founder, Steve Anderson, talks about is he says, ask, ask and you shall receive. You don't, one of the biggest things is, you know, as a five-year-old, we're so excited to ask, right? We're so excited to raise our hand and, ooh, pick on me, pick on me. And we ask a million questions. And by the time we're older, we stop asking questions. We stop being inquisitive. And I don't know if it's because we're embarrassed that if we ask, we might look stupid or we're just not as curious about the world. But the first thing that we do at Eagle U is we try to reinstill that desire to ask in realizing that you aren't going to get anything that you want out of life unless you ask first. So ask and it shall be given. And the second thing that, (laughs) excuse me, that I, um, you know, I don't know how to answer the second part of that, to be honest with you, Chris. I mean, you've been a student. What do, what do you think it's from just, your experience? How, how, you, how we help you? How does Eagle you teach how to ask questions? Yeah. How did you feel like we helped you as a student learn how to ask better questions? I think the, the biggest part was seeing people that I was impressed with being extremely humble, extremely vulnerable, and extremely curious, right? Steve and Matt and Maria and you and... Grace Lester and all these people are extremely impressive, both on paper and in person. And seeing Steve, Steve Anderson, who's the founder of Eagle U, sit in the front row and take notes on a curriculum he wrote was just like, okay, if that guy's taking notes, there must be something important here. That was the biggest thing for me. Um, And Steve asked great questions. And I I was always impressed by that. Um, But partially, I think... I, I don't know why, but I never lost the whole five-year-old ask questions thing. Um, but Eagle U definitely helped me sharpen it. it. It's You're right. It starts with the desire to ask questions, but then it's figuring out how to ask better questions, right? Get to the why instead of just the what. And that's, that's right. one thing that's helped me a lot in my career currently with students is, okay, you have what and you have how, but let's figure out why that matters. And that's that's really, when you talk about core values, I think that's what we're talking about is the why and Eagle U does a great job of teaching that why. 
how we relate to the, to the classroom. I think it's, or what do you, what do you remember from your time at school? Did you enjoy like, who's your favorite teacher? You don't have to have one off the top of your head, but what, were there, was there a certain teaching style that you liked lectures, exercises, labs, uh, worksheets, anything like that? For me, I was not like a science math person. I was an English person. So my favorite teacher in high school was um, Mrs. Lumpkin, Lindsay Lumpkin, um, who I still am very close with today. And the reason I liked her classroom is a couple of things. First, it was about more than just school. It was about more than education. It was about the fact that we were people. In fact, one of the exercises she had us do in the classroom was we had to write an essay on if you really knew me. And then people would read their essays out loud and, and we got to just discover who we were as human beings, which was just awesome that she did that. It was like a life changer. Terrifying. Um, was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the second thing that was really great is she created an environment where you could ask questions and she set the tone and the culture of the classroom. And so there was no fear in being wrong. There was no fear in answering a question. She created this atmosphere where we all in that classroom were family for that, you know, period of the day. And it allowed this environment to, to thrive in, in that way. So definitely her. How does she do that though? And I'm glad you mentioned that it's not just the teacher's effort. It's the class's effort. So did she have class rules? Like you couldn't laugh at someone's question or did she like, Oh, how does she open class? Did she say like, there are no stupid questions? Like what talk me through her kind of methodology. It's very well, and that so back to back to that essay. That was one of the very first assignments that we had in class. So that's at the stage right there where we all were aware of everybody's, you know, home life struggles and successes and who we were as people, so that we weren't just strangers sitting in seats. We actually could emotionally connect to the person sitting next to us, if that makes any sense at all. It does. And then. I don't know. She didn't necessarily have rules. She just kind of led by example. So if somebody raised their hand and it was a stupid question and somebody else were to make a comment, you know, making fun of that person or whatever it might be, she cut that, she nipped it in the bud right there and said, you know, that's just unacceptable and we don't treat people like that here. And, you know, really would stick up for the underdogs and always give people a benefit of the doubt. And she just led by example. So yeah, I think that's how she did it. Wow. She sounds awesome. I might have to talk to her too. <laughs> um, yeah, she, she would be somebody wonderful. I would love to connect you with her. I love talking to teachers. And I, I like asking teachers this question. And I, I want to hear your, your response as well. But if you were to design a curriculum to teach teachers, what would that look like? If you had 10 days, or even it doesn't have to be like a 10-day workshop, but if you had three books that every teacher should read before they teach class. I don't know if you know this, but in Texas, it takes less than 50 hours to become a certified teacher. Wow. 50, right? Which I find appalling because teaching takes a lot longer than that, in my opinion, or to learn how to teach. So if you, you could pick three books that every teacher should read before trying to like mold the minds of the future, what would they be and why? Oh my gosh. First would probably be how to win friends and influence people. I think if teachers knew how to deal with students and just other human beings and how to motivate them based on what what they desire, they would see more results, if that makes sense. So I think that would definitely, definitely be number one for me. And the second book, I haven't read it, but it's by, I believe his name is Clayton Christensen. And I'm going to look it up for you right now because he wrote this book called How Will You Measure Your Life? 
but he also wrote a lot of books on studying the public education system. It's called Disrupting Class, and it's something that I've wanted to read that really just talks about this blueprint for education transformation that I've just heard rave reviews about. So that would be number two for sure. And number three, you know, I don't know what I would have for number three, if I'm being honest with you. So Disrupting Class was that second one? Yes. Okay. That's interesting. I've read a, I read a few of those books. I've heard of Clayton Christensen. I've read excerpts of How Will You Measure Your Life, uh, but I haven't heard of his Disrupting Class. But all of these books seem to center around, in my opinion, like I see trends across these books and one of them is class size, right? So you said that you understood your classmates in Ms. Lumpkin's class on an, on an emotional level, on a personal level, and she was able to maintain that throughout the year. So how big was that class? Oh, oh I'm trying to think. You know, that was so long ago, Chris. I don't really remember, but I do remember it was a smaller classroom. I will say that. Okay. And what, what would you say your ideal class size is? Because that seems to be a big issue. Um, I would probably, I don't know, maybe 15 to 20 students. I don't know if that's standard or if that's small or big. I can't, you know, I haven't been in high school in a few years. That's small. But I would probably say 15 to 20. The current classrooms in, in Texas, at least, are well over 25 in the public education system. Some of them are 35 in one class. Wow. Yeah. Across the country, they get generally, like I, I just read a book looking at both public, private, and charter schools and what are the commonalities between the one that work versus the ones that don't work. And there's a correlation between class size and student engagement for sure. So a 35-person classroom, most people would say wouldn't work. Like I, I mean, think of Eagle U. If you had one team leader with 35 students, how much is how much are those students going to get out of it? How much can the team leader well, and- spend on each person? And to your point, Chris, about Eagle U, we actually intentionally cap off the entire program at 200 students. And granted, it's, that's not a classroom, if you will, and um, not the same type of curriculum that we're teaching. But there is something to be said for there's a, a really great range of numbers of, how not range of numbers, but what am I trying to get at here? There's a really good number, whether it be in the classroom or in a seminar like Eagle U, that is ideal, that has the most impact. And if you get too big, you start to lose your impact. So we've been at Eagle U recognize that. And that's why our team leaders have eight to 12 students per team leader. And then we cap it at 200 students total so that intimate experiences um, can create these bigger results. Okay. Yeah. There's, there's definitely a threshold to where like eventually it just doesn't work if you add one more student where it, it might still work, but it doesn't work as well. Right. So every, every summer you get, 20 or so team leaders with no teaching experience. Some of them have never, you know, had to lead a meeting, let alone lead six small group sessions in one week, right? Can you talk me through how you designed your training process for team leaders? Because the team leaders, for those who don't know anything about EOU, like we have breakout sessions where they meet in small group and they have to discuss what we went over throughout the day in our like larger group sessions. And I've always found it fascinating how in depth you guys train us over that weekend. So Taylor, can you talk me through what goes into planning team leader training and what's the goal? Yeah. Um, And how it works. Yeah. So definitely. So first of all, I cannot take credit for our team leader training. That is all due to the wonderful Maria Granados who 
really put together this great system of team leader training uh, before I was in this role. But two things of why it worked. First is our team leaders are leading from personal experiences. So they're not just trying to reiterate what they read in a textbook to these students. They are giving their, here's how I did it. Here's what I experienced. And that's how they're teaching their students at Eagle U is firsthand experience and sharing their story, which really turns out to be the most impactful thing. And as far as sharing their story and how we help them do that is throughout the entire course of the year, they are given exercises and activities each month that correlate to our curriculum so that they are sharpening their own skills so that they have these stories to share and these experiences and here's what worked for me, here's what didn't. And that's what we do throughout the entire year is help them better themselves because people who are the best leaders are, you know, first and foremost, they're the best individuals that they can be. And yeah, that's really, I mean, that's really the key component there, I would have to say. Is they, they teach from experience. Right. That would exactly. be key. Okay. Thinking back to your time in the classroom, whether it was, I want to focus on college, right? Think about your time in college. Is that what professors do in your experience? Is that what the good professors do? Is they speak from their own experience? My good professors? Yes. One of my favorite professors, I'm actually going to an award ceremony meeting for him tonight. Nice. He teaches military history. And he was the best professor I had in college because he was in the military. You know, he was a, yes, he's a PhD that studied it, but he lived it. He was an army ranger and, you know, he had been overseas and he had, he had done it himself. And so I think that's fantastic. And what I struggled with the most in college with my professors, especially my political science professors, they never had boots on the ground. And so they would be teaching campaign strategy or whatever it might be. And I had interned and done so much work on the ground in campaigns throughout my entire time in high school and college that a lot of times I felt like I knew what my professors were teaching almost better than they did because I had lived it. And I could say, well, actually out in the real world, that's not really how it works. And I think that we have just forgotten. And I, I don't know. I mean, that's where I think one of our biggest flaws is in these universities these days is it's a bunch of academia and we've forgotten about real world experiences. Yeah. So how, how can we fix that then? If you were redesigning the hiring process for professors, do you make experience a requirement? Do you cap like you can only teach for two years and then you have to go back to the real world and then you can come back for teach and teach for another two years? How would you fix it? I would probably pull my professors from the industries that they would be professing. So I'd be pulling my accountant professors from an accounting firm and, you know, so on and so forth. And then training those professionals how to teach instead of, you know, teaching people how to teach and then teaching them the curriculum in which they're professing, if that makes sense. I, I, I don't know for sure if this is how it works, but almost like Teach for America where they, they're pulling these young, like talented individuals who have talents in these industries and in these subjects. Yeah. And then they're teaching them how to teach it. So t- the teaching component has to come second. You have to have, a, or I'll tell you, one of my pr- favorite professors, Dr. Harmon, who will be on the podcast in a few weeks' time, says that the biggest issue in colleges and universities in the United States is that. of professors don't love and respect what they're teaching. So they don't continue to learn. And you talked about lifelong learning earlier, but is that really 
that seems like the the most important component. Every teacher should be a student. Right. So yeah, so exactly. Yeah, I I see that as a huge problem. And I think it, it goes down into high school, right? Like can you think of let's we've been very positive with your teachers so far. Uh, my friend Nicholas is pretty negative about his teachers. But what do you remember you don't have to say their name by any means if you don't want to, but do you remember a teacher that you just couldn't stand? Why why did you dislike their class? Whether it was high school or college or even elementary school, if you want to go back that far. Yeah, give me a second to think. Who did I really not stand in high school? You know, I I don't, I'm struggling to answer that question, which I know I'm going to think of somebody when we get off of this. Um, Usually everyone has that one traumatic know. experience from school. That's what I'm, what I'm going for. Um. <laughs> oh God. I, I mean, there was this one teacher, I was a terrible student in high school. Like I rocked college, but I was terrible in high school. And I remember my one teacher threatened to um, fail me if I missed one more class. And it was, AP English lit and that was traumatic but actually I thanked him for that at the end I don't I don't have a ter- okay I'll give you this one Chris in college <laughs> that my favorite professor that I was just telling you about he had a TA so a teacher's assistant yeah. that was awful he was so condescending and so rude when you would ask the question and he would just make you feel like such an idiot and he just had this attitude that he was so much further above you which good you should be you're the one teaching so if I had to answer the question it would probably be him because he was just such a jerk to his students okay so yeah we I'm seeing trends and teachers that you like and obviously I've I've asked a lot of students this but yeah I think you need to be and I love that at Eagle U you call them team leaders you don't call them like coaches well you don't call them coaches you don't call them teachers right they're leaders they're part of the group but they also have a special role in that group, but they're not above the group, right? I think that's, right, that's exactly. the key. And that's what drives a lot of people nuts, right? Whether you, like I said, everyone has a, or most people have a, an experience from high school or from elementary school that they've kind of just blocked out of their memory because it caused psychological trauma, right? I don't know if you know um, Brene Brown, right? She's, Love her. Yeah, she's great. She actually lives in Houston. Um, I want to have her on the podcast, but she's quite busy. Um, but she talks about shame and how most people, when they're asked about shame and they have to give an example of it, the example comes from a school setting. Uh, now, you could say that's because, you know, we spend a lot of time in school. But I think it's because sometimes the way the classroom is set up is there's a lot of shame around questions and there's a lot of shame around creativity, right? That's caused sometimes by the students, but also by the teachers. Um, exactly. How do you manage, like we talked about training team leaders, but how do you manage, how do you train team leaders to control the group and kind of shut down the, that like shame factor of, you know, we're dealing with teenagers, peer pressure is inevitable, but how do you manage it? Um, again, I keep saying this, but first they lead by example. I mean, they set the tone and the culture for their groups that they're leading. And then second, you know, and I did this as a team leader myself. I mean, that, what, that very first meeting, I made it very clear that we are all on the same page. We are all here together. We are not competing with each other. We are not here to put one another down. We are here to build each other up. And that anything other than that just would not be tolerated, plain and simple. Yeah. Okay. So setting ground rules early. And then following yep. those ground rules yourself. Exactly. 
no hypocrisy in the classroom. That's what one of my favorite teachers from high school used to say. He was like, if, if I don't, if I say I'm going to have graded papers graded by Friday and I don't, you guys have a right to ridicule, ridicule me because if you turned in a paper late, I would ridicule you too. It's like, that's awesome. Go, Mr. Volding. Yeah, I love that. I think that's great. Hold yourself to the same standards, right? So I want to talk about lifelong learning because now you're, you're outside of formal school. Um, is there anything, like, do you feel like your interests have changed since you've left school, right? Because you don't have, you can study whatever you want now. You don't even have to study if you don't want to. But do you feel like your interests have changed since you've left the classroom or is there are you still that kind of history english girl both i think in a lot of ways i changed a lot of ways i stayed the same i think when i made a career shift from politics to running a nonprofit, i think that's been the biggest shift for me but when i was in school i really are not in school but in college particularly i tried to force myself to like each subject that i was being taught because i wanted to be so well-rounded and well-read and very diverse. And so that part of me really hasn't changed. But again, the big shift was when I switched careers. And then when I got married, I think I also focused a lot on personal lifelong learning and how to better my marriage as well. Okay. And talk me through kind of your process. Let's say you want to, you see an area in your life where you're deficient or an area even that you're good, but you want to get better. What's your process for seeking that knowledge out? Do you immediately just go to Google? Do you ask people for book recommendations? Like what's, what's the, now that you're designing your own curriculum, either subconsciously or consciously, right? How do you do that? Yeah. So if I see that I'm deficient in a part of my life, I'm going to really, I mean, truly, and this sounds so cliche, but I'm going to pull on everything I learned from Legal U. And the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to identify people in my life that I either may already know or not know yet that are living that part of the life that I feel deficient in greatly. So, you know, if I feel like physically, like I'm kind of really slumping lately, I'm going to find somebody that is athletic, that is healthy and say, okay, what do you do? How do you do it? Who do you look up to? What should I be doing to be better? And what books would you recommend? And then I do the research. And then from there, I set many goals for myself. You know, I felt like physically, you know, since I stopped competing and training for pageants, I physically kind of let that, part of my goal tire deflate. You did so run a half marathon okay, how, recently. <laughs> yes. Say. So then I had but yeah, I had to set myself a goal in that quadrant of my life to kind of pull me back up to par. And so setting that half marathon goal was great. And then I talked to everybody I knew that had done it and said, okay, how did you train and what did you eat and how do I do it? And did a lot of research and then set many goals for myself every week. Okay, this week I need to run eight miles on Saturday and five miles on Tuesday and, and whatever it may be until I reach that goal. And I feel like I've inflated that tire a little bit. Okay. One of the questions I find myself asking most often is how do we teach grit or drive? Do you think it stems from being able to write goals? Is that how you teach it? If people have good goals and they'll be motivated to do them. Do you agree? I don't know how you teach grit. I don't know if you can teach grit. I think you can inspire it. I think if you can identify not what you want, but what that person wants, what that person desires, what ignites that fire in that person, and you can then help inspire them to head in that direction, the grit comes naturally. I mean, you can't teach grit. You can't force it. It needs to come. I mean, grit is 
I, I mean, I don't know if it's by definition, but I'll say it's by definition, that fire in your own heart and soul. And that only comes from you. So my husband can tell me to do a half marathon and try to inspire me all he wants, you know, to do it. But unless it comes from within, I don't, I don't think it matters. I don't think I would have been motivated to do it unless it came from me. I see. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Um, I'm thinking of an analogy that Matt Granatis gave me one time where it's like, Chris, you can like, someone can take a lighter and light a fire all they want, but if there's not oxygen to keep that fire going, then it's going to go out immediately. Um, and the only person who can provide that oxygen is yourself. Right. So I can just sit there just relighting it constantly, but it's not going to stay lit. Yeah. I think that's a great analogy. Wow. Interesting. So I did want to talk to you. You work in the nonprofit sector. Um, and I've been very interested in kind of educational nonprofits for a long time, particularly because they serve the kids that are on the, on the margins or that don't have the support system that they need. Okay. So when you're working with, whether it's lower income students or students who've just had a rough time, whether it's medically or, you know, their, their just family life isn't great. How do you change your approach? Like how, how do you, do we need teachers who understand where they're coming from, from like have a similar background or do you just need people who are highly empathetic? I really, and this might sound dumb, but I think we just need to start with love. I think with those people that we know have had a hard background and they've struggled and they've come from a rough circumstance, I think you just greet them with grace and you greet them with love and, you know, you don't force them to just check the box that you would necessarily force another student to do because they might not be capable of doing that. I don't know if I worded that correctly, but tailoring your approach with that student and, and the res- I don't want to say the results you would expect to get with them, but appreciating those baby steps you take with that student instead of expecting them to just leap and thrive like you might another, because for this student, it's a lot harder and a lot more challenging for them and celebrating those small wins with them and taking it one step at a time. How do you, Is that- yeah, it, it makes sense. And I have follow-up questions, but I'm trying to phrase it well. I also appreciate Eagle U's ability to know when to help, but not to force that help on someone. Um, and I think in, in the pro bono work I do for the company I currently work for, that's the toughest thing because I, I want so much more for these kids, but I, if I, I can't force it, they have to want it. So how do you, do you have any tips on how to do that? And like, and do you have any tips on knowing when to stop well, like forcing it? <laughs> I think we need to, well, you have to realize that we can't on our own, just change somebody's life. We can't force it down people's throats. We can't, force them to be a changed person. What we can just do is what we can do, which is just be the best that we can be to them, give them everything that we can and encourage them to use the things that they've been taught. And at the end of the day, you do have to leave it up to them. And I don't think you can necessarily quote unquote, save everybody because it does have to come from them. So I guess, yeah, that's my answer to that. Yeah, it's tough. And do you experience the same thing? Do you like, um, Obviously, you know a bit about my background and why I would be more frustrated with the kids that come from a rough background, right? But do you find yourself more likely to over-support those kids that come from 
a rough background when in other scenarios you would recognize that the, the student might just need to learn on their own a little bit more. Do you find yourself doing that too? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, if I know, you know, just, and I'll give you just a simple example, you know, on getting in the registration paperwork for Eagle U. Sometimes it takes students months and months and months to complete their application that I'm waiting on and waiting on. And if I know that they're coming from a rough background where they don't have access to the computer, it's just trying to really put it all in perspective and say, okay, this person's having a hard time. I, what can I do to help them? So if I need to send over a PDF version or whatever it might be to help these students, I don't know how to answer this really. Yes, I bottom line, yes, I meet them with grace and I, I do hold them. Not, I don't want to say hold them to a different standard. I'm really messing up this question. I don't want to either, but it kind of is, right? Like I'm more willing to, (laughs) quote unquote, like carry a student over the finish line. Like I'm just not going to, I'm not going to leave whether they like it or not. When the kids come from a background that I'm empathetic towards, all right, where I understand that unless they like take full advantage of this opportunity, that life's not going to be great for a while. Well, you know, when you just said, you just said something that I think really makes sense. When you said carry them over the finish line, I think what I have learned to do, and I've had to do this with my brother who really struggles, is defining what the finish line is. That you don't have to carry them over what you would define as the finish line, but helping hold their hands so that they can cross their own finish line. So, nice. you know, for me, like success is, you know, going to college and getting a great job and having a great marriage. But for my brother who struggles, success for him is, getting out of bed before 10 o'clock in the morning and getting out of the house and taking his medicine. And that is the finish line for him. And so being an encourager of his finish line, instead of necessarily pushing him to mine, is probably my answer to that. Okay. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I did have one more question in this area. And then I, I want to be respectful of your time. So I'll probably ask a few more questions and then we'll wrap it up. For the students who come from a background where they don't have the support system at home that most students do, right? Parents aren't in the picture or you know you're sending them back into an environment that isn't ideal for a child, a teenager, or even, you know, sometimes college kids go back into environments that aren't, just aren't great, right? How do, you, mm-hmm. how do you provide a support system from a distance would be the question. Because I feel like yeah. a, lot of, a lot of students, and I told my friend Nicholas about this story the other day, but there's a superintendent here in Houston who I'm hoping to have on the podcast. But every night she goes on Facebook Live and reads a children's story and posts it saw on, that. on Facebook, right? Because she thinks every student in her school or regardless of what school they're in should have a bedtime story read to them, right? And I think that right, was, I love that. that's a very, very creative way to one, lead by example, but to also give your students a support system even though you can't be there in their house, right? So, yeah, and um, that's a really good question because honestly, that's the part that I think I struggle with the most in this job is it's like, you know, we've taken you under our wing for this week and you've had this amazing time and you've just seen your full potential and it, it breaks my heart to send them back to sometimes where they came from, knowing that they're on their own. And as far as the support system, first and foremost, we have our team leaders who is their team leader throughout the week they are supposed to be following up with them throughout the year and checking in on them and befriending them and helping them more than just those five days. And the other answer to that question is we're 
trying to teach these students about mentors and how to find them and how to identify them and how to ask these people to be mentors and what it means. And so we're trying to give these students the strategies and the systems and the, um, the ability to identify people in their lives that can be of help to them if they don't, especially if they don't have those naturally, if they don't have great parents. Okay, well, who can you identify in your community that would be a great role model and a great helper for you that you're not alone when you leave this week? How can you take what you've learned and use that to create a support system outside of the Eagle U bubble, if that makes sense? Yeah, that does. So it's kind of giving them access to mentors, which leads me into an example. Okay, I love mentors. You love mentors. We, We come from the same training in Eagle U. But how, if you could modify the current like formal education curriculum, whether it's in middle school or high school, to explain what mentors are and how to find them to students. Do you think that can be done in like a, a one-off like a keynote session or does it need to be like a once a week class for an entire semester about how to find mentors and how to, like how to find right. the most out of them? So how would you, if unlimited budget or practical budget, but unlimited, how would you introduce that to the classroom? Well, you know, I don't necessarily know if it would have to be an every week thing. I think the whole idea is to plant seeds. So, you know, give them the information, inspire a goal, inspire drive and and go from there. So I think, yeah, I think you definitely could do a seminar throughout schools that teaches, you know, in two hours. Okay, here's what a mentor is and walk them through a couple of exercises where, you know, write down a list of everybody in your life that you look up to. Okay, now what values does each one of those people have? And who do you, what do you want to do for a career? Okay, who do you know in that industry that you can go talk to? I think it can definitely be taught in two hours and you plant that seed and they build on it from there. Yeah, but there are a lot of skills they have to develop before they can talk to mentors, right? That's the ego use built out into it in that way. You have to develop certain skills to get the most out of an interview with a mentor. Right. Right. But, you know, I think in, if, I mean, here's the deal. Yes, there are a lot of skills, but I think the way we might be thinking of mentor right now isn't necessarily how every student, especially, you know, a student that's struggling, maybe a mentor for them is just their neighbor's parent that can just help guide them through life a little bit where they don't need to necessarily have all this training to go and speak to them. I mean, if we're talking mentors, like you're going to go sit down with the president of the United States and ask them to mentor you. Yes, that takes tons of training. But I think a lot of times with mentors is it's just somebody who's going to be a gold role model for these kids or I shouldn't say kids, but students who are necessarily, they don't necessarily need a lot of training and they can kind of learn that along the way as long as they've been taught the basics. Okay. And do you think that would be the most, like if you could pull the most impactful exercise out of the EU curriculum, do you think that would be it or would you have another one on there? I mean, we talked about goal setting earlier, but in terms of one exercise that you could add to the school curriculum, right? Is it the mentor roundtable? Oh, I love the mentor roundtable. I do. But if there's a one thing I would pull, it would probably be what Matt Granados taught us that one that one year where he had us sit down and he had us write out what are your 20-year goals in every aspect of your life, you know, personally, academically, spiritually, financially, career-wise, and then he had us go 15 and and 10 and 5, and we had to work backwards to see if what we're doing now is going to help us get where we ultimately want to be, and that was such an eye-opening experience 
And going back to that 77% of people being unhappy uh, statistic that I shared with you, I think that exercise could help to change the trajectory of, yeah, of where most students and individuals are heading these days. And so that would probably be the number one thing I would teach. Like I had, I had a three hour discussion yesterday about the student loan crisis. And I think <laughs> learning, yeah. learning how to develop a why before you decide to take out 80K loans, I think that would be the biggest solution. I personally don't believe that <laughs> they're trying to make school free. I'm like, I don't think that's going to help. Well, we shouldn't make it free. I mean, it's, nothing's free. It's just someone else. Just me. Yeah. But I would say, you know, yeah, I think just teaching practical things in the public school system, I think financial literacy, I mean, had my teachers or a we had a course in high school that taught me what it meant to take out a private student loan and how repayments work and what that really looks like. I wouldn't be where I am today with $86,000, just an undergrad debt, you know, and don't teach practical things anymore. And I, I saw this quote the other day that was really funny that somebody shared on Facebook and it was, you know, I am so glad we learned about parallelogram so that, you know, it's really going to help me on parallelogram day. You know, and it's like, yeah, instead of learning how to do our taxes, you know, nobody ever taught us how to do our taxes, which is so frustrating to me. And I think we just need to be teaching practical things in our education system. But how do you balance that? Because the, so I, I get the question at least once a week from, I see, you know, probably 20 to 30 students a week, right? High school, college, middle school, different schools all over Houston. And I get the question once a week, why are we learning this? Right. And my students just had their parallelogram test a few weeks ago. So, uh, yeah, I've, I've fielded that one recently. And the answer I give is certain things you're not learning for the content of the course, but you're learning for the skills that you need to understand that content. Right. You're probably not going to use right. it again, but learning how to think in an abstract way and comprehend complex information and explain it to someone else. All of those macro skills are useful forever. So how do you balance like those, those macro skills, right? I, I want to open up my own school one day and I'm, I'm trying to figure out how you balance macro skills with practical knowledge. Um, right. But I definitely see it as a weakness, right? I think there are certain school like curricula that are designed specifically for standardized tests that aren't practical and don't teach macro skills. So yeah, I agree with you. I do think there's a balance there. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think, I think Eagle U teaches a lot of those macro skills, but if you could teach learning how to ask good questions through an English class or a history class for certain students, but then for other students, you're going to have to teach how to ask that why in a different si- setting, like science, right? I think that's how you personalize it. Obviously, it's a logistical nightmare, but I personally believe yeah. that education should be centered on a healthy list of macro skills that students need but also have a secondary list of practical skills that they need to understand. And then you, the balance of those two is, is how you develop curriculum. And I don't, I don't think schools do that very well, especially at the college. I would agree with you. Yeah. Even in college, right? Do you remember learning stuff in like you, you, you said like campaign strategy, I'm sure there were at least two or three assignments. That like I'm never going to use this again because no one does it this way. Right. I like, I took three marketing classes in college and I have not used a single exercise from any of those in my current, I'm a director of marketing for a small business that's growing quite quickly. Right. And I don't use anything from that class. So it's, and I think it goes back to the 
the practicality of the content comes from the experience of the teacher <laughs> because right. there's so much distance between the real world and academia, especially the college level, but oftentimes at the middle school level as well. Teachers don't love what they're teaching and understand it well enough to make it applicable to students' lives. But yeah, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Taylor. Well, I, I want to have conversations with you that aren't recorded. Uh, so I'm going to ask you those questions after I, I uh, we end the podcast here. But I want to thank you for your time. I thought that was a fun conversation. I'm still improving my my interview ability, but maybe we'll have a round two later when I uh, have some more. I think you did great. Oh, thanks, Taylor. I thought your answers were fantastic. I love when when my podcast guests can tell personal stories, right? And mention a teacher, and because I don't think teachers get enough gratitude, but I like I I guarantee I'm probably going to try to interview at least one person that you mentioned on the podcast and. I know it's just going to make their day. As a teacher myself, I love when students recognize like the effort that goes into teaching because it's extremely difficult. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Okay, Taylor. Well, thank you so much. That was awesome. Well, thank you so much, Trent. Yeah, um, that was fun. And anything you want to shout out? I know Eagle U <laughs> registration is always, always on your mind. Yes. Anybody need more information? Let me know. I will. I'll I'll link Eagle U in the podcast notes and we'll we'll go from there. All right. Thanks, Taylor. Okay. Well thanks so much, Chris. You have a great day. Hey guys, I hope you enjoyed that podcast with my friend and mentor Taylor. Taylor is a very impressive woman who's worked in everything from politics to nonprofits. She has a lot to teach us, and I hope you took at least one takeaway from that conversation. As always, please share this with friends, and if you have any insights, questions, or comments about the episode, please email me at learnhouston at gmail.com. My goal is to create a productive conversation about education, its problems, its benefits, its solutions, and its shortcomings. Um, I hope that as people share these episodes, we can create a more productive conversation about education and improve it for the rest of humanity.